Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode one, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1991 and 1993 black comedies, The Addams Family and The Addams Family Values. Both films were directed by Barry Sonnenfield, with The Addams Family being written by Carolyn Thompson and Larry Wilson, and Values by Paul Rudnick. Both films star Angelica Houston, Raul Julia, Christopher Lloyd, Christina Ricci, and Values also stars Joan Cusack. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you all still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So The Addams Family is the creation of cartoonist Charles Adams, who wrote and drew The Addamses for The New Yorker magazine starting in 1938. The Addams Family appeared in The New Yorker up until Charles Adams' death in 1988, which is a long time. That's amazing. Yeah, holy cats. In 1964, ABC hosted a black and white sitcom based on the cartoon, and this is where the Adamses received all of their first names, like Morticia, Gomez, Wednesday, and so on. This is also where the memorable theme song, written by Vic Mizzy, originated as well. Oh my gosh, do you hear my baby crying? Oh no, no, everybody, it's okay. He's all right. He's with his dad. So the show wasn't all that successful and was canceled only after two seasons and in 1960, and this was in 1966, um, but due to reruns, the show actually became an instant cult classic. In 1973, a short-lived animated TV show aired Saturday mornings on NBC and in 1977, a made-for-TV film called Halloween with the New Addams Family premiered on ABC with many of the original actors from the TV show they were reprising their roles. Now, according to Simon Brew from Den of Geek, quote, Scott Rudin, a development executive at 20th Century Fox, pitched to the studio an adaptation of Charles Adams's The Adams Family comic strips, and the studio enthusiastically agreed. However, Fox would ultimately not make the film, as Orion Pictures, who owned the film rights to The Addams Family, would not sell the property. Further crucial property rights were owned by Charles Adams' widow as well. However, production finally moved forward when Adams' widow finally sold the remaining rights to Orion, who put the film in production, unquote. Tim Burton was an obvious choice to direct a film, but he ultimately turned it down, so the role of director was given to Barry Sonnenfeld. This would be Sonnenfeld's directorial debut, and he had previously was employed as a director of photography, and he DP'd such films as When Harry Met Sally, Three O'Clock High, which is one of my personal favorites, and of course, you all know this one, Misery. 
In a 2012 interview with Jennifer Vineyard, Sonnenfeld stated that he originally intended that it be unclear whether Fester really was an imposter or not. But all the other actors rebelled and they chose 10-year-old Christina Ricci to speak on their behalf. And she, quote, gave this really impassioned plea that Fester shouldn't be an imposter. So we ended up totally changing that plot point to make the actors happy. And they were right. It was the better way to go, unquote. <laughs> That's incredible. I had, I had no idea. Can you imagine if this film did not have the real, like, Fester Adams? Like, it was never really his brother. But they, like, still accepted him into the family. They're like, you might as well be him. You know, it doesn't... I feel like there's no payoff with that would have no, happened i know oh hmm. my god good for those actors holy cats i know they probably were like thematically this does not make sense <laughs> i know good for them okay so according to angelica houston's memoir watch me it was decided that houston would wear elastic straps glued to her temples so that her eyes would slant upward which after some time would give her severe headaches Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah. According to Simon Brew, quote, as the studios prepared the film for release, David Levy, the producer of the 1964 Adams Family TV series, filed a lawsuit against Paramount Pictures, claiming that the film infringed on his property rights. What? I know. I'm like, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. It's like, didn't, weren't the rights bought, though? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's because their names. Oh. Are in the original comic strip. That's and that's true. why. Okay, okay. I was first I was like, wait, what? Yeah, what the heck even? <laughs> yeah. So the suit was a uh, was eventually settled out of court after the film's release due to Paramount wanting to quickly film the sequel due to the film's success. So with a budget of only thirty million, the Adams family was a huge success and grossed over hundred and thirteen million in the United States and over hundred ninety one million worldwide. Wow. Yeah, so even though it received mixed reviews among critics, the numbers were enough for the studio to greenlight the sequel almost immediately. During production for the sequel, The Adams Family Values, uh, Houston remarked how it was clear that actor Raul Julia, who plays Gomez, was becoming really sick. He had apparently had stomach cancer and needed surgery. He had the surgery, but then he got food poisoning, which like already hurt his vulnerable stomach, and oh my he... God. Yeah, he never really recovered after that. Unfortunately, Julia died within a year of the film's release due to complications from a stroke that was caused by the abdominal issues that he was having. Oh, that's so sad. I know. He was like 40-something. I think so. He was super young. Way too oh young. Oh, my God. Yeah. According to Brew, quote, the Adams Family Values was well-received receiving significantly better reviews than the first film, unquote. However, its final domestic box office take was just under $49 million, which is a significant decline from the previous film's domestic total of $113 million. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't find any information on Box Office Mojo for the international box office records, so it might have done well overseas, but I doubt it surpassed the original numbers in the end. I mean, $49 million for a domestic is super low. Yeah. Man, oh man. 
Ultimately, The Addams Family and Addams Family Values are key gateway horror films that are perfectly silly and macabre for the whole family. According to Ethan Anderton, quote, The Addams Family keeps the spirit of the original series intact while making it a little more twisted for contemporary viewers, unquote. And according to Michael Sragow, you've got to respect a comedy that makes light of arson, torture, and murder in these squeamish times, unquote. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yes. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot for these two films? Sure. They're the quirkiest family around. In the first Adams Family film, we're introduced to Gomez and Morticia, their children Pugsley and Wednesday, along with Morticia's mother and the family's servants, Lurch and Thing the Floating Hand. They spend their days partaking in gruesome and spooky activities, hanging out in their strange haunted mansion, and searching for Fester, Gomez's long-lost older brother. Gomez has a lawyer named Tully, unaware that Tully owes money to a loan shark named Abigail Craven. Abigail uses her son Gordon to intimidate Tully into robbing the Adamses in order to pay back his debt. They hatch a plot which involves Gordon posing as Fester. After conducting a seance to contact Fester's lost soul, Gordon, now Fester, shows up with Abigail in tow, acting as his psychologist. Abigail claims that he has forgotten his past. Fester begins to weasel his way into Gomez's good graces, but Fester begins to develop feelings for his supposed family. Fearing that he's losing sight of the original plan, Abigail forces Fester to claim the family fortune after taking Gomez to court. The family is forced to leave their beloved mansion to live in a motel and get regular jobs. As Gomez falls into a deep depression, Morticia returns to the mansion with Thing to have a word with Fester, but is taken prisoner. Thing rushes to Gomez for help, and he returns to rescue Morticia. Abigail finally admits that she had found Gordon, and he isn't her biological son, revealing that he had been Fester all along. Together, Gomez and Fester send Abigail and Tully to the grave, and things are finally put right as Fester is home with his family where he belongs. All is well, and Morticia tells Gomez that she is pregnant, which leads us into the second film, Adam's Family Values. Baby Pubert is born and has... (laughs) (laughs) I can't say that without laughing. Baby Pubert is born, and as Pugsley and Wednesday have a hard time having the newborn baby in their lives, so Gomez and Morticia decide to hire a nanny to help. They find Debbie, who falls in well with the family as Fester, de- as Fester begins to develop feelings for her. Little do they know, Debbie is a black widow, and she's got her eye on Fester. Wednesday notices that there's something sinister about her intentions, so in order to maintain her cover, Debbie tells Gomez and Morticia that the kids want to go to summer camp. There, they are forced to partake in happy, typically white activities that leave them as the outcasts of the camp attendees, along with another outsider named Joel. Meanwhile, Debbie and Fester get married. After several murder attempts, she whisks him away from Gomez and Morticia against his will. Meanwhile at camp, Wednesday sabotages the camp's pageant play about the first Thanksgiving by setting the set on fire, and she and Pugsley flee the camp after stealing a van. Back at Debbie's mansion, she tries to kill Fester yet again by blowing him up with a gift-wrapped bomb. 
Her plan fails, of course, and she tells Fester that she only wanted to marry him for his money. With the help of Thing, Fester escapes and reunites with Morticia, Gomez, and the rest of the family. However, Debbie has other plans for the lot of them. She ties them all down to electric chairs and plans on killing them. But baby Pubert escapes from his crib and saves them all in the nick of time by accidentally killing Debbie. <laughs> the, f- <laughs> the family escapes disaster yet again, and one year later, at Pubert's first birthday party, Fester is introduced to Dementia, Cousin It's Nanny. All is well with the Adams family again. Thank you so much, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You are most welcome. I love how Adam's family values ends with Debbie's hand coming out of the grave. Same. It's very, it's very horror movie-esque. And I was like, I was like, you know, like Carrie ends like that. And I was just yes. like, there are so many things about this film that I forgot happened like that ending. And I was just like, wow, that is <laughs> such a surprise. <laughs> incredible (laughs) and so anyone who argues that this is not a gateway horror film is silly because this definitely is especially with that ending that's totally what they were going for with it (laughs) 100 percent, i agree okay so the bechdel test yes it passes in both films yay right so let's talk about nancy's dream team test this is a little bit harder to pass was the supporting cast at least 50 percent women yes for both films Did a woman write, direct, or produce, or edit the film? Yes, for both. Carolyn Thompson wrote the first film, and Susan Ringo was the associate producer for the second. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? We can count Raul Julia. He is of Puerto Rican descent. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Mm. So this episode is mostly going to be, in fact, the whole episode is going to be about the women in this film because I feel like the Adams family has been talked to death. Mwah. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice dad joke. <laughs> I didn't mean to either. That just comes naturally now, I think. So, oh. <laughs> um, and I mean like the women in the film have been talked a lot about too, but I I don't know. That's something that I think is really important about this film. And I think that's why a lot of people really enjoy The Addams Family. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. So let's start with Morticia. According to Kaylee Dre, quote, If you glance at the synopsis for the 1991 and 1993 films, it's easy to dismiss Morticia as just another two-dimensional, quote-unquote, mum character in a kid's movie. But if you sit and watch the films in their entirety, then it quickly becomes apparent that Morticia is the fully actualized matriarch of our dreams, unquote. Yeah, I mean, I think Morticia was really the first woman on screen who actually enveloped everything that I wanted. Like, she was so hot. She's incredibly (laughs) hot. And she's a mom, a homemaker, But she also knew how to have a great time, and she was well-educated and well-spoken and supportive of other females, and that is huge. Like, compared to the rest of the stuff that I was watching at the time, this silly horror comedy taught me more about feminism than regular mainstream, like, quote-unquote, girl power stuff that I'd been ingesting. And in an article written for Pure Wow, 
um, Alexia Delner says it perfectly when it comes to Morticia. And she says, quote, first of all, can we talk about her body positivity? Sexually liberated, intensely passionate, and friggin' hot, Morticia is a helpful reminder that women, too, have needs and desires. She communicates openly with her partner about what she wants, and she isn't afraid to ask for it. Like when she says, last night you were unhinged, you were like some desperate howling demon. You frightened me. Do it again. <laughs> While avoiding the Jessica Rabbit hypersexualized trope. And she also says, seriously, whose idea was it to show that movie to a bunch of 12-year-old girls? I just like, watched that movie recently, and I was like, dang. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> I saw this when I was really little. Yeah, like, what the even heck? Yeah. <laughs> but she also says, particularly, boundary pushing for the PG set, Morticia shows that S&M can be safe, enjoyable, and consensual. Remember when she tells Gomez to stop torturing himself because that's her job? Now, I don't know about you, but I find that way sexier than anything in Christian Gray's Red Room, unquote. <laughs> so, so true. I yeah. In the same article by Kaylee Dre, they say, quote, How many times have we been forced to sit through a movie about an unhappy sexless marriage? That tired old trope of the frustrated husband and the nagging wife is far more damaging than it initially seems. Not only does it reduce womankind to two-dimensional irritants, it also suggests that women are essentially beings free from desire placed upon this earth to quote unquote serve their partners in the bedroom not so for morticia all you have to do is look at her to see a woman who's confident in addressing her desires however sort sorted they may be a point underlined wonderfully when after gomez makes reference to the old ball and chain she coquettishly promises to go fetch them Oh, yes, that's right. Both members of this exquisitely enviable couple take turns acting as the dominant and submissive role. Talk about equality in the bedroom, eh? Angelica Houston was 40 when she took on the role of ethereal Morticia Adams, which is no small feat in itself. The fact that the character was empowered, desirable, sexually liberated, and immaculately beautiful in every single scene she's in was nothing short of miraculous. How often do we see a mother character who is genuinely sexy, after all? Unquote. That, I love that, though. That's so true. Yes. <laughs> Especially after becoming a mom, you truly do feel like you, and I know not all mothers feel this way, but I, speaking from experience, you kind of feel like you are the scum of the earth after a baby is born. And I know that sounds really harsh, but postpartum is awful. So oh. <laughs> it is. And you just feel so unsexy. You don't feel like yourself at all. And even if your body, quote unquote, bounces back you still have remnants of being pregnant that you can still see on your body. Like you either have stretch marks or you can kind of see like your belly is kind of like loose, you know, and it's tough. It's really tough. And to have a character like this, who is a mother of three eventually, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, um, feel confident and, and is desirable to her husband is so nice and it just it made me feel I when I watched this it made me feel really good about myself like knowing that you are still desirable to your partner and you are still beautiful no matter what you look like and you still can be sexy as a mom and I think Morticia is a really great example of that 100 mm -hmm. percent 
Yeah, and what I also love about her is how warm and inviting she is. I know. (laughs) And that's how I hope to be as a mother, too, you know? Like, she's gentle and she's sweet to her children and really to anyone she meets, I guess. And Houston apparently based Morticia off of her dear friend, Jerry Faye Hall, who is an actor and a model. And Morticia supports her kids so much, too. Like, I love that line in the first film where she's talking about, like, who Wednesday looks up to. And she says, quote, Wednesday's great aunt Calpurnia. And then she looks at the picture and she says, she was burned as a witch in 1706. They said she danced naked in the town square and enslaved the minister. But don't worry. We've told Wednesday, college first. (laughs) Such a great line. I know. Um, But even though Morticia is naturally very mothering to her kids, she also, like, wants to have a life outside of motherhood as well. And I actually typed this in the script while I was breastfeeding my kid. (laughs) (laughs) So I was doing two roles at once. And I tell you, I love my son to death. But if I had enough money for a nanny or a babysitter like Morticia does, 100% I would hire one. And I'm not kidding. And I know most moms would feel this way. Like, truly, in the film, Morticia tells Gomez, quote, I'm just like any modern woman trying to have it all. She tells him, a loving husband, a family. It's just, I wish I had more time to seek out the dark forces and join their hellish crusade. (laughs) Relatable content. (laughs) Right. And I feel like any other husband in like the 1930s when the comics were written or even in the 60s when the TV show was on, any other husband would be like, well, you're a mom and a wife now. Sorry, honey. Like, That's what you signed up for. But Gomez says, and so it shall be. Yes. I don't know about you, but that is sexy as fuck. Like, yeah, (laughs) so cool. And I love how Gomez is like one of the least toxic men in fiction. It's so refreshing. He's seriously the best. I love Gomez so much. And, you know, whether you agree with it or not, Morticia and Gomez don't lie about their sexual relationships with their kids either. With their kids either, like yes. Wednesday and Pugsley don't know any stories about storks or virginal births. Like their parents had sex, and that's where <laughs> puberty came from. Yes. <laughs> so Morticia doesn't tiptoe around the kind of stuff that is maybe a little bit more taboo, which is arguably why Wednesday is so realistic about the real horrors of the world but also why she's probably so sure of herself too so let's talk about Wednesday um heck yes let's talk about Wednesday uh okay so I think it's fair to say that every like young creepy girl's first influence or relatable character was Wednesday yeah I'd say Wednesday and Lydia from Beetlejuice, but I think Wednesday maybe more so. Yeah, like I've been her for Halloween. I had quotes written in like my school notebooks that she says in the films. And like she was one of my top five favorite female characters, even like horror aside. And I think it's because she unapologetically speaks her mind and she calls out bullshit when she sees it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And her name is so great too. Like I'm sure... A lot of people already know this, but her name is from a poem that is supposed to, like, predict how a child is going to be based on what day of the week they're born. So, for instance, my son was born on a Friday, and Friday's child is loving and giving, thank goodness. But Wednesday's child is full of woe, which (laughs) Wednesday is. (laughs) 
Yes, I love it. Oh my gosh. And I love that she's young, but the film doesn't discredit her intelligence. Her curiosity is also encouraged by her parents, along with her love of strange and unusual things. She's got a pretty healthy relationship with her family, too, which, you know, is something that you don't see a lot of in mainstream media when it comes to, like, prepubescent girls. They're often portrayed as completely unhinged with uncontrollable hormones. Mm Mm-hmm. But she understands more about the world than most of the adults in her life. And when it comes to sex, she already knows how babies are made, like we said before. And it isn't awkward. No, she's straightforward about it. They had sex. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. She also knows that she's attracted to Joel, um, the young kid that she meets at summer camp. Mm -hmm. And... She can have that and be healthy without having to dedicate all of her time and effort to him and their relationship. Like, she's such a little badass. I know, right? And Joel asks if she ever wants to get married and have kids. And she's like, nah. And he's like, <laughs> and he's like, well, what if the man who falls in love with you also worships you? And she's like, then I'd pity him. <laughs> I love it. She knows what she wants, but more importantly, she knows what she doesn't want. And I think it's important for little girls to understand that. Yes. You also spoke about Wednesday's intelligence. In the first film, she immediately suspects Fester, much like her mother does too. Mm -hmm. And in the sequel, she also suspects Debbie. So she's street smart, I guess, but she's also very book smart because she knows all about the Bermuda Triangle because she studies it. And she also knows the truth about the first American Thanksgiving, (laughs) which is that white people suck, basically. In its, in its basic form. And I think that scene where they rewrite the play and sort of rewrite history and kill the settlers is very cathartic. Mm-hmm. And according to Myrna Waldron, quote, Adam's family values explicitly challenges conformist wasps at the summer camp that Wednesday and Pugsley stay at. I love, I love the term waspy. Yeah. It is the best. I use it all the time. I love it. (laughs) The siblings absolutely refuse to compromise themselves and pretend to be happy or to enjoy sickeningly sappy things like Annie the Musical. The camp counselors show favoritism to the traditionally attractive blonde white rich kids, and it's made quite obvious how hateful and hypocritical they really are. At the end of the movie, Wednesday and the other a quote-unquote outcast, deliberately sabotaged the counselor's tremendously racist Thanksgiving play by symbolically enacting revenge for the genocide that Native Americans suffered at the hands of white people, unquote. I love that because when I saw this movie for the first time, like, that was my introduction to what really happened. I was just about to say the same thing. Because I remember watching it at my grandparents' house with my parents and being like, what is she talking about? And my parents were like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like a thing. And you I know, I was like, oh. I have to look into this. And then, you know, I learned about, like, smallpox blankets. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I was like, oh. And I'm just going to say it. Like, so many people 
give Christmas a hard time because it's, you know, was a pagan holiday turned into a Christian holiday. Mm-hmm. But goddamn, Thanksgiving is about genocide. So yeah. I don't know. Like people are like, oh, I prefer Thanksgiving over Christmas. And I'm like, you know, they're all bad in their yeah. own way. We just need to invent some new holidays. We really need to get with the times. <laughs> goddamn. <laughs> so let's talk about Debbie Zielinski. Can I just say really quick, too? Sure. I love how they give her a serial killer name. Yes. Like, it just sounds like a typical, like, oh, Debbie Jelinski. Like, you can hear it on, like, 48 Hours or, like, 2020. Well, and that TV program is so great. Like, that guy, when he, like, my husband and I were cracking up watching it, turning to the camera, murder. <laughs> She's the same woman. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. That was so freaking good. Yes. So according to Myrna Waldron, quote, the villain of Adam's Family Values, Debbie, played by Joan Cusack, is a parody of the femme fatale. She's a black widow with the most ridiculous motives possible. She supposedly killed her parents as a little girl because they got her Malibu Barbie instead of ballerina Barbie. The (laughs) tropes of the femme fatale are stretched to their absolute limit of believability, which helps to highlight just how silly that character archetype it is. And naturally, the Adamses accept her faults wholeheartedly, as they always do. They don't judge anyone except those who judge them. They just take issue with her attempting to murder them, too, and decorating with pastels. One must never decorate with pastels, unquote. (laughs) That's my favorite. (laughs) Debbie, pastels. (laughs) (laughs) I freaking love Debbie. I love that she's a murderous female character. (laughs) Like, I don't, obviously, I don't condone murder in any capacity but no of course i not. think it's important to show women who kill for their own pleasure or selfish gain and i do not think that it's a coincidence that fester falls in love with her because she's kind of like his adopted mother in the first film like yeah. she is th- and i'm talking about um abigail craven when i say this but she's really the only mother figure that Fester remembers. So he clings to the kind of love that reminds him of what he used to have. and Which is abusive. Yes, this film speaks a lot about the patterns of abuse without really meaning to, I think. But the Adams family still feels for her. They are still kind to her because they see pain differently, I think. And they realize that, like, I don't know. Maybe Debbie just needs a goddamn hug or something. Jeez. Uh, you know, and they also bury her in their family graveyard. Yes. They easily could not have done that. They could have just been like, you know, like, screw this woman. But they, she's she's part of the family. She married Fester, so she gets buried in the graveyard. And Joel says, like, he feels bad for her at the end. He's like, oh, poor Debbie. She was sick. And... And then Wednesday is like, she wasn't sick. She was sloppy. You know, whatever. But yeah, but they they talk about her like they cared for her. Yeah. And I think that that's so, I don't know, it's so pleasing almost in a way. <laughs> like, yeah. She was this bad guy, but they got it. They're like, we get it. Like Malibu Barbie, the nerve, right, is I what know. they say. <laughs> 
I love it. And she's definitely a modern day Salome and who was the nemesis of John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fester is John the Baptist in this situation. And according to Beth Allison Barr, quote, the story of her dance before Herod with the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter led medieval Christian artists to depict her as the personification of the lavish woman, a temptress who lures men away from salvation, unquote. Uh, so really, Salome was the original femme fatale, you could say. Mm-hmm. And oh, and Morticia Adams is a vamp. And a vamp is an attractive woman who uses her charm to seduce men. And they are usually women who wear tight black dresses and red lipstick, resembling vampires, hence the name. And this is Morticia. So Debbie and Morticia both represent a different type of femme fatale. It's like duality. It's the light and the dark, which is ironic because Morticia is actually the good one. And Debbie is like parading behind this facade of pastels. Yes. Yes. But it's so great. Like they are both the same like stereotype almost, you know, but they're just shown in in different ways. And And that can kind of see why... Morticia says, like, you have entranced Fester and you put him under some sort of sexual spell. I respect that. (laughs) Because she is the same way. She's like, she puts Gomez under a sexual spell, you know. And and so they understand each other. And I love that. I love it. Sometimes you just gotta put people under a sexual spell. My husband and I joke that we are more like Debbie and Fester than Morticia and Gomez. (laughs) But yeah, so let us know if you and your partner are like Morticia and Gomez or like Debbie and Fester. Mm. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's talk about one of the female characters in Adam's family who hardly ever gets any sort of spotlight. And that is the grandma. Oh, my God. Grandma is the best. Like, she's she's so hilarious. And because she has this like go with the flow attitude she solves so many issues that happen within the family and she's this wealth of knowledge how old is she nobody really knows but (laughs) (laughs) she has this um like ancientness i don't know if that's a word but i just made it up (laughs) all right she has this ancientness about her that i love and Most importantly, she taught Morticia a lot of what she knows, I'm sure. So that leads me to believe that she was a trailblazer in her day. Yeah, and I really love how there are no mother-in-law jokes with Morticia's mother. Like, there easily could have, could be, especially since she's not really an Adams. Like, she lives equally amongst the Adamses and is really a mother to Gomez and Fester, too, since their real mother is dead. That is very true. She really is, I think, an important aspect to the film. And she gets overlooked often. But you're right. Like, she's a trailblazer. And it's because of her, Morticia, and maybe even Wednesday, know what they're doing when it comes to life and the dark arts. And we'll talk about that right now with Mother Maiden Crone. Yeah, I'm so, so, so grateful that there are three generations of women in these films. And I'm also grateful that the progression of sex, witchery, education, and values progresses the way that it does. Wednesday really becomes the depiction of what it is to be a modern woman and the way that she views her own relationships with men. 
And she does what she wants, but she's not unkind, which I think is really important. She still treats people well, and she has a good relationship with the other women in her life, too. I think more so she treats the people who deserve it well. Like, she doesn't treat Mm. the camp counselors or the rich kids well at all, but that's because they're fake and undeserving. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I can see some people maybe not agreeing with this and thinking that, you know, everyone deserves to be treated with love and respect. But I think Wednesday is a good mix of her mother and grandma in this way. Like, Mm -hmm. grandma seems really snarky to everyone, while Morticia is kind to everyone. And so Wednesday is, like, somewhere in between. Right. Yeah. And another aspect that I like about her is that she does not compete for the attention of men. Rather, she literally steals the show by being more intelligent and resourceful, and she gives those who are seen as less than a leg up in this way. And I really do think it is because of the influence of her mother and grandmother who represents the crone in this situation. Right, yeah. And another thing I love, one stage of life isn't viewed as more important than the others. Like, All three generations give each other respect, and there's never any belittling that happens between the women. Not once does Morticia tell her mother that she's too old, and in that same light, she never tells Wednesday that she's too young. That is so true. Yeah, like, they all realize that the the three of them make valuable contributions to the world and the family, and... You know, that's something that is almost never portrayed. There seems to be, like, always this mother-daughter competition when it comes to, like, the female trifecta. And you see it a lot in fairy tales, too. Like, the wicked stepmother and, like, the crone that wants, like, to steal, like, the youth and beauty from the younger women. So, I don't know. I think that's really cool. Right. And going back to the first film... Grandma is working because she's trying to catch a cat for dinner Mm -hmm. and she, you know, is not just laying around and doing nothing. Um, Morticia goes to to unemployment and tries to find a job and Wednesday and Pugsley, but Wednesday really, I guess, is trying to sell poison lemonade on on the street. (laughs) Yes. So all the women in this family are trying to earn back the money and respect of the family, basically. Mm -hmm. While Gomez, and this is the thing, like Gomez as a man has every right to feel despair and depressed and to have this moment to feel this way. And like Morticia never nags him. She does sort of get like, you know, we have to kind of maybe move along here you know she's like we have to maybe like get our pull ourselves back up um but she never gives him a hard time for feeling depressed well if anything she just encourages him because it's it's like you're not really gonna get anywhere by telling people like oh you're so lazy you need to get up and get a job like she is so empathetic towards people and she she just pulls him up Right. She does. And then, like I said, like, grandma is working really hard to make sure the family eats. And I love that line where she's like, dinner's going to be late or whatever. (laughs) Dinner's going to be late. (laughs) Yeah. Because the cat is getting away from her. And then Wednesday, who's also trying to make money. So, like, these women, this mother maiden crone trifecta in this family are really holding this family together while the men are dealing with very... 
I would say, feminine emotions. But this is the opposite, where the men are given a chance to feel feelings. And the women are given a chance to be breadwinners. And I love it. Same. Ah, it's so good. Yes. So what are the Adams family values? Well, according to Alexia Delner, quote, a healthy attitude towards sex aside, Morticia and Gomez could also teach a class in family values. They share child-rearing responsibilities, like both making an appearance at the dreaded school play. Another good scene. <laughs> yes. That's a scene from Hamlet, by the way. Oh my god, so good. <laughs> um, they come together as a team in times of crisis, like when Uncle Fester returns home after being lost in the Bermuda Triangle for 25 years. And they make time for their shared interests, death, dance, and demons, as well as their separate ones, you know, like gardening and black magic. <laughs> And, you know, for me personally, I feel like the Adams Family values are acceptance of others, loyalty to what makes you happy, truth as in being true to yourself and telling the truth even when it's difficult, being a helping hand to those who need it, generosity and grace and lots of passionate love. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the family creed perfectly sums up their family values. We gladly feast on those who would subdue us. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And it is so whether, good. yeah, and like whether it's your biological family or your chosen family, a family that sticks together and protects each other is a strong family. And I think that's why this family, the Adams family, has made a huge impact on us as a society, more so than the Cleavers or even the Brady Bunch. Like, like, they were never really in danger of ever being torn apart because their lives seemed pretty perfect on the screen. Yeah. But the Adams family have been through some shit. <laughs> <laughs> and they represent, like, this falling, um, this fallen family with their dilapidated Victorian home, which represents like what happened to those beautiful homes during the Great Depression, mm -hmm. and this family that has maybe lost everything, yet they still have each other, so they're still the ideal family. Mm -hmm. And with all of the shit and discrimination that they have gone through, and with all of the doom and gloom in their lives, they still love it they love the dreariness and the drama and the bad times in their lives because in the end it doesn't really matter i think because they are together and they get through it all together and i that's why i think the adams family values are important and like the whole idea of family values i guess came from the reagan era when they talked about like how people who were gay were mm -hmm. destroying like family values or like things like people who weren't Christian weren't yeah. um, the family values of Christianity were going away and stuff. And so even, you know, Adam's family came out in 1938, but this whole idea of having a family that's so different and so non-conventional has still lived on up until right from 1938 to the 1960s to the 1990s and to now. I mean, that new Adam's Family cartoon movie came out, you know, and that's yeah. how this this family has lived on for so long. Because I think, in general, most people, most families identify with them because of that. So. I love it. Well, 
that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Thank you all for listening. We just got back from a very long hiatus because I had a baby and like oh, three months ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> a lot of work. Um, but yeah, so that... <laughs> So this is us coming back, and I um, I hope we didn't sound too rusty. It's been a while, but yeah, we're trying our best. <laughs> yep. Oh uh, just an update on our Patreon. If you are a new patron, we won't be sending out any gifts until this whole COVID-19 crap blows over, at least for the most part. So please, new patrons, hang tight. I'll make sure to send you your gifts soon. Uh, I just, because I have a new baby, I'm really trying to quarantine to the best of my ability. However, you can also support the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you to our shop. And then you can search in the bar like what you're looking for. So if you want to support the show, you can do that. So treat yourself, won't you? Yeah, we know times are tough right now, so if you like the show, you can also help out by following us on social media, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>